Good morning once again. Thanks for being with us for worship this morning. This is the last Sunday in December, which means it's the last Sunday of the year, which means you only have a couple of days to get your reading plan going for the coming year. And so if you are on the email chain here at church, I sent out a link to Ligonier's website that has is it 15 or 16 different reading plans for the year. And I'd encourage you to take advantage of those. If you didn't get the email, come talk to me. I can print some out for you. I can send you the link. The important thing is not which plan you choose. The important thing is that you are in the Word consistently. I do not care what plan you choose as long as you are in the Word of God. It is our life. It is our hope, our confidence. Everything you need for life and godliness is in the Bible. So why? Would you not spend time there? So if you did not get that link, come talk to me after the service. I want to encourage you. The new year is a great time to fire it up and get started on a routine that will feed your soul and give you what you need to live the Christian life. Don't start the year without a plan. Maybe you're in the middle of a plan already. That's fine. Keep it up. Keep up the good work. And if you do not have a plan for scripture reading, I will help you if I can. But the important thing is that you are in the word of God regularly. So be encouraged. It's what you need to do. Last week, we started the first of this two-week Advent series. Advent just means coming. We're talking about the coming of Jesus and why he needed to come. So last week, the answer to the question, why did Jesus need to come, we looked at a couple of different texts in Galatians and saw that Jesus needed to come because of our inability to perfectly keep God's law to satisfy the requirements for righteousness. But then we went to Romans chapter 8 and saw that God, through Christ, has done what we could never do. And he sent Jesus Christ to live a perfect life of obedience and then impute or give the righteousness that he earned in his life to all those who have faith in Jesus That was the great news that we saw last week. This morning, we're going to see yet another reason why Jesus had to come, and it again has to do with sin. Now I know you're probably sitting there saying, good grief, it's the day after Christmas. Can't we talk about something happy? No. The thing is this. If we just skip over the bad news... And all I tell you is that there's good news. And you go, great, why do I need it? You need it because you and I are sinful. And unless we understand the severity and the damage of sin, the good news will never be as sweet as it should be. The Puritans used to say, until sin be bitter, grace will not be sweet. And so one of my jobs as your pastor is to make sin bitter to you so that you understand the sweetness of the grace of God. And I hope that you see that this morning. I I haven't forgotten what day it is. I promise you this is a Christmas sermon. But the good news that we'll see today in light of the bad news is the best news that we could hear. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 3. So if you haven't done so, Open your Bible, 1 John chapter 3. It's all the way, almost to the end of the New Testament. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. Back up a little bit. In this section, the Apostle John 
gives us the reason why Jesus came and why it's so important that we understand this because of our sinfulness. So follow along. I'm going to read 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 4. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you aware of our own sinfulness. Each one of us would take about a half of a second to be able to identify areas in our life where we have fallen short. Which is a huge problem because of what you require in your holiness and in who you are. Which is why we are humbled and thankful that you did not leave us to stew and die in our sin, but you have sent Jesus Christ, your Son. Not only to earn the righteousness that we could never earn, but to destroy our greatest enemy. And so this morning, Lord, as we look at the foul nature of sin and the glorious redemption in Christ, would you, by your Spirit and through your Word, open our eyes? Would we see ourselves rightly? Would we see our own inability and inadequacy? But then would we see the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ? and what he came to do, and what he accomplished in obedience to you and on behalf of your people. Father, come and be our teacher this morning, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now you'll notice in this text that we just read that John actually gives two reasons, one in verse 5, one in verse 8, why Jesus came, or maybe your Bible says he was made manifest, it's just his appearing, it's his coming. But to answer the question posed this morning, I take my answer primarily from verse 8. Now these are very similarly related issues, right? To say that Jesus came to take away sin, and to say that he came to destroy the works of the devil, are very closely related. And we're going to see how these fit together. So to answer the question, which is our title today, why did Jesus need to come? I take it from verse 8, to destroy the works of the devil. And in summary, the works of the devil would be sin. The effect of sin. The sinful nature that you and I have. As I stated last week, the main problem in our world, in your heart and in my heart, is sin. It's not that we just live under like the wrong kind of government or our officials are the wrong kinds of people, or you know, you just have been dealt a bad hand in your life, your circumstances are really crummy. That's not the main problem. Those things may all be true, but they are not the main problem. 
The issue that each one of us must reckon with is our own sinfulness and how we can stand before God. You and I, because of Adam and Eve and their fall into sin, have been born into sin. It is our nature. When God created the world, he created everything perfect. That's a hard thing to imagine, isn't it? Everything was perfect. The creation was perfect. God's creatures were perfect. That includes Adam and Eve. But it does not take long for sin to come in. Third chapter of the Bible. We see Satan tempting, lying, deceiving already. So let me take us back to the beginning just for a moment to set the stage for the good news that we're going to see today. We need to understand What is going on? So listen as I read from Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree of the fruit in the midst of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what does Satan do here? What are his works that we see in this passage of Genesis? Well, he tempts Eve to doubt God, to doubt what God said, He calls into question God's authority, his ability to make these kinds of commands. He makes it sound as if God's commands are burdensome and oppressive and, come on, you don't have to do that. He's lying. And I think this is important to point out as well, at the base level, the foundation of Satan's operations lies the sin of pride. Okay, pride is the thing that stirs in your heart and says, I don't have to do that. I I can make up my own mind. Don't, Don't tell me what to do. I know better. It's the creature looking at the creator and saying, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm gonna make up my own rules. And this is exactly what Satan wants us and what he wanted Adam and Eve to believe. That they did not have to submit to the good law, the good instruction that God had given them, and he implants these seeds of doubt and pride and ultimately self-sufficiency. This is how Eve fell. This is how Adam fell. And in their sin, they plunged the whole of humanity into sinfulness. You can read about this in Romans 5, 12 to 21. Paul gives a thorough treatment of original sin. So Adam and Eve fall into sin and then God in Genesis chapter 3 comes to the garden and he pronounces judgment on mankind and on the serpent. Listen to this. This is Genesis three fourteen and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
The word enmity means conflict, strife, fighting. There's going to be a struggle between Satan and the people of God, the offspring of Eve. And when we get into the New Testament, we see that this is not just a curse pronounced for the moment in history, but it is actually a promise. We would call this the first gospel. And what that means is that God, in Genesis 3.15, is saying, there's going to be conflict here. Because of your sin, there is this battle that goes on, but it is not a battle without end. This is not some kind of Star Wars dualism foolishness, where there's good and there's evil, or yin and yang, and they're just existing, but neither one can ever overcome the other. That is not the case with God. Good wins over evil. In the end, which is our hope. Can you imagine living in a world where you knew there was good and evil, they were identifiable, but there was no hope. You just, well, I hope it's a little bit better today than it was yesterday. What a hopeless state. But God says there is coming a time when Satan and all of his works will be crushed, which is what we are celebrating at Christmas time, by the way. The coming of the snake crusher, the one who will deal the blow to Satan. So why did Jesus need to come to destroy the works of the devil? Now another way to talk about the works of the devil, like I said before, is to talk about sin. That's what he does. This is what John says. If we go back to our text, 1 John 3, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now we just saw the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And I think it's worth our time to at least comment in some detail about how the Bible defines the works of the devil. Now we said sin, and that's a broad category, but how does the Bible talk about this? What are these things? Because we need to recognize them so that we can not be caught unaware by what Satan does. So here's a few things that Satan is known for. John 8, 44, he is a liar and a murderer. Matthew 4, he is a tempter. Matthew 13, he's a robber. 2 Corinthians 12, he harasses. 1 Thessalonians 2, he hinders. Revelation 12, 10, he accuses. 1 Peter 5, 8, he kills and devours. Revelation 12, 9, he deceives. And in addition to all the things that the Bible makes explicit, there are the thousands of perversions and twistings of God's good gifts that Satan will use to trip you up in your walk with Christ. You see, he's not just concerned about the big, obvious areas of sin. We know, generally, to stay away from the obvious things that are going to trip us up. But if Satan can just distract you, if he can keep you busy with something that's really not that productive spiritually, he's happy. We shouldn't only look for the works of Satan in these glaring, obvious things. They're there. But the Bible calls us to be sober-minded, aware, alert, because he is crafty. So when we talk about the works of Satan and what he does... We need to be really aware of what the Bible teaches 
and what goes on around us. Go back to our text, 1 John 3. Look at verse 5. You know that he appeared, this is Jesus, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Here's what John's getting at. This kind of an odd way. John phrases things. You have to really think about it usually, at least for me, because of the way he talks. When he says that no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning, here's the point. If you are united to Christ, you belong to him, that's what abide in him means. You are living in Christ you are going to be influenced, shaped by, look like that person, Christ. And in him there is no sin. So if you are united to him, John is saying, your life ought to look more and more gradually like Jesus Christ, in whom there is no sin. So don't get tripped up on the language, even though it's a little bit wordy. What John is saying is if we are in Christ, if you abide in him, your life ought to look like you live in there. Like you are belonging to Jesus. He's telling us that the person who continues in sin, that is who lives and goes on sinning with no regard for God, no regard for the consequence of sin, that person proves that they do not abide in Christ. But more than just proving the negative, right? Okay, if you live this way, you prove you don't belong to Christ. Look at the awful positive that John says in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. You either belong to Christ and you abide in him and your life begins to look more and more like Jesus or you belong to what the Bible calls the prince of this world. And your life looks like that. Now in verse 5, John says that Jesus appeared to take away sin. How did he do that? How did Jesus take away sin? When you go to Hebrews chapter 9, you can just read, this is 9.26. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is a really important detail in our talk this morning. Jesus removes sin through sacrifice. The sacrifice of his own body. Now, I don't know about you, but I am really glad that John did not stop by just saying, Jesus appeared to take away sin. Now that is glorious news. It is something we celebrate every week when we come to the table. But there is more. (laughs) There is more that we need to know than Jesus just came to take away sin. And I don't mean to belittle that at all, but bear with me here for a moment. If Jesus came, sacrificed himself for sins, and yet did not deal with the source of sin, where would that leave us? That's what the sacrificial system was. You made atonement, you made an offering for your sin, but then you just sinned again, and you had to go make another offering, and another offering, and another offering. So John not only says Jesus came to take away sin, but he goes on to tell us that Jesus deals 
with the source of sin. Imagine this. Imagine that outside in your yard is absolutely full of poison ivy. Anyone ever have poison ivy? It is nasty, right? Itchy, scratchy, red, rash, yeah, gross. And you cannot go outside of your house without getting this. It is just growing everywhere. And then along somebody comes and they say, hey, I've got the cure for that rash. You put this stuff on your arm and within minutes it's gone and you're like, yes, this is great. And you put it on and it clears up and you're good and you go outside and you got it again. But you've got the cure. So you go back and you put it on and there it is. But then you go outside and you, you get what I'm saying here? What you need is not just somebody to give you the cream for the rash. You also, in addition to that, need somebody to kill it at the source. Get rid of the plant. See where I'm going with this? Jesus comes and gloriously pays for sin. Yes, but more than that, he deals with the root, with the works of Satan. You see, we are not stuck in some endless cycle of sin and confession and sin and confession. Is this all we have to look forward to? No. Because of what Jesus did, there is hope for the Christian that one day we will be totally free from sin because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. It is not just the temporary cure that we need. It is the permanent crushing of our enemy that Jesus came to do. This is such good news. A few minutes ago we sang the words, this is why we picked this song, he breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. What does it mean that Jesus breaks the power of canceled sin? Anybody know what that means? It means that because of his sacrifice, because of what Jesus did on the cross, sin has been dealt with completely. And the sin that you feel and the stuff that weighs you down, you do not have to be in bondage to anymore if you are in Christ. You can be set free from that. And Jesus, through his sacrifice, breaks the holding power that sin and guilt have. He breaks that and it has been totally paid for. It's Colossians 2.14. The record of wrong was nailed to the cross therefore freeing the people of God forever. Now whenever we talk about this, we, I, we need to bring this up. And maybe you're already thinking this. You should be. We still sin. We still deal with the effects of sin. And if Satan has been defeated. If Jesus came and destroyed the works of the devil, like the Bible says he did, then what's going on with all this sin still running around? I mean, it, it doesn't really seem like Satan's defeated. It kind of seems like he's running around doing whatever he can to derail your faith, to destroy the world. So what's going on? We live in a time 
that most theologians would refer to as the already and the not yet. You ever heard that phrase? Already, not yet. And what that means is that on one hand, yes, the work of Christ totally took care of every record of our sin. He destroyed the works of Satan. His, his fate is sealed, as Martin Luther put it, and lo, his doom is sure. It is fixed. And yet we do live in a time where there is still the effects of sin. So what would you say? Did Jesus come and destroy the works of the devil, or didn't he? I would say, yes, he did, and yes, he will. Yes, he did, and yes, he will. You see, like I said a moment ago, we are not stuck in this hopeless cycle where the only confidence we have is that we can have our sin forgiven, but we're just going to be in this sinful life forever. The good news of Jesus coming, the good news of what he did when he came is that there is hope for a future that is free from sin, free from pain, free from tears, and brothers and sisters, it is not on this world and this earth. This is something that is coming. This is the promise of the gospel. Now the Bible uses this language pretty regularly. Earlier when we were in the book of Ephesians, we saw that Paul tells us that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Are you seated there right now? I'm not. But it is positional. The thing that we should take away from this is that the work that needed to be done to destroy our greatest enemy has been done. It has. And while we live in this world, while we are in this flesh, we will experience failure, sin, heartache, sorrow, disappointment, fear, anger, bitterness, fill in the blank. That does not mean that Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. This is the way that God has planned the redemption of his people. Maybe this will help. I want to I end by asking a question and then giving an illustration. I've often wondered, why did God choose to do things this way? Like, not in a doubting way, like I think it's wrong or whatever, but I just wondered, why, why conquer through sacrifice? Why not just kill the devil? God created him. He could do that. Why this whole history of redemption with a promise a fulfillment, and yet we're still in this in-between time where we need to trust God, we need to have faith that he knows what he's doing, that he'll bring us through to the end. Why? Why this way of doing things? That's a good question, I think. You should, you should be thinking about this. Why does God conquer through sacrifice? Here's my answer. When Jesus comes in sacrifice, he wins the hearts and the affections of his people rather than having to demand that we have affection for him. When Jesus comes and offers himself, just like Josh read from Philippians, when he emptied himself of his deity enough to come down to earth, 
And he takes on flesh and he lives his life and he dies and he does it with humility. He wins the affections of his people. Rather than him just coming and saying, you better worship me. Think of it in terms of an earthly king. An earthly king can demand loyalty, respect. All the people in his kingdom, in some way or another, give him what he is demanding. Because he's the king, he's on the throne, he wears the crown, it is the position of royalty. And he has the right to say, you're in my kingdom, you're going to honor me. That's one kind of king. Think of another kind of king. A king who comes and does not look down on his people and just bark orders, but who gets on their level. Who goes out and sacrificially delivers the kingdom from the greatest enemy by the sacrifice of himself. And because of what he does, the people are endeared to him. They love him and they freely give him their trust and their loyalty and their affections. Which king would you have? Which king would you have? See, Jesus is the latter king. The king who comes and destroys our enemy through sacrifice. I mean, where, where do you think all of these stories come from that we love so much? The stories of conquest, of the knight slaying the dragon and freeing the kingdom. Shakespeare didn't come up with this. Tolkien didn't invent this. Lewis did not make this up. God made this up by sending his son to defeat our enemies and free his people from bondage. What we celebrate at Christmas is the origination of all great tales that we should be reading to our kids. That Jesus Christ comes in sacrifice and destroys the works of our greatest enemy. Now the only way for you to benefit from this amazing sacrifice is to turn from sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus. It's one thing to look at it from the outside and say, wow, that looks really great. I wish I could be in there. You can The thing about Jesus is he does not go out and conquer and come back to his kingdom and seal the gate. No one else comes in. This is who I have. That's it. He opens the gate and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I've defeated your enemy. You don't have to keep striving and fighting in your own strength. God has done what you and I cannot do so that we can live the life that we should never live. But this is the significance of Christmas. That Jesus comes to destroy the works of the devil. And if you are united to him by faith, all that he has is yours and you can be a part of his kingdom. What better news? When you say Merry Christmas to somebody, what are you saying? You are commemorating the time when Satan and all of his works were disarmed and eternal life given, promised, accomplished for God's people. 
do not ever forget that what we celebrate at Christmas is the fact that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Let's pray together as we come to the table. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you did not leave us stuck in our sin. Thank you that you did not leave us to defeat our enemy on our own because we are weak because of our sin. But rather you sent your perfect, sinless son, Jesus Christ, in whom there is no sin. And as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Father, I praise you for destroying our enemy. And I praise you for giving us your spirit which enables us to recognize what's going on around us and to be aware and vigilant. And would each one of us here, Lord, be aware of the schemes and the pitfalls that are around us. Help us to live in holiness like David just talked about. And would we remember that we do not just celebrate a baby at Christmas time, but we celebrate a king who came in sacrifice and freed us from the bondage to sin. We give you thanks for this glorious plan, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.